The following is a podcast from Ballin Entertainment. From the heart of Stratford, Ontario, I'm Craig Thompson, and this is the Stratford Slice. What does it mean you're a good man, Charlie Brown? We'll find out as we unshell some peanuts with a man who rubbed shoulders with the legendary Charles Schultz. He's a former actor who once walked in the shoes of the comic strip icon Charlie Brown. I'm going to introduce my guest in a moment, but first I want to go back to the summer of 1976. I was working as a usher at the Stratford Festival. They hired teenagers uh, back then. Now they hire mature adults, retirees, maybe some even who worked there as teenagers. I don't know. We had flashlights and we ushered people into their seats. This way, please. Watch your step, please. I remember that season, Nicholas uh, Pinnell and Richard Bennett alternated in the role of Hamlet. There was the Tempest with William Hutt, and Maggie Smith was in the importance of being earnest. Apart from memorizing these three plays, front to back and back to front, and annoying my family with my amazing uh, stage skills, my theatrical skills, and my memory, I remember two other uh, things. Um, the great Canadian actress Jackie Burroughs and her naked cartwheel across the stage during a curtain call, and the smell of those funny uh, cigarettes that we were introduced to just outside the, the stage door. And that was the summer I first met my guest today, Rick Whalen, who's sitting across the table from me today some five decades later. Rick, glad to have you here on the Stratford Slice. What do you remember from that summer? I don't remember too much. <laughs> Thank you for having me as a guest, Craig. Uh, actually, I remember um, standing next to the stage manager uh, when Jackie Burroughs made that famous cartwheel, uh, she was fun happy with a lot of things about the show, and I believe she and Gail Garnett were having a bit of a tiff, and uh, so they took their curtain calls together, and they were on each side of the stage, and they both nodded, and they both came on. Well, Jackie nodded, and Gail came out, but Jackie didn't. And so Gail took her bow, and then Jackie did her famous cartwheel nude, you know, curtain call. And John Hayes, who was then the producer at Stratford, muttered to his himself, that bitch. <laughs> and it was a memorable moment, And uh, but I, I love Jackie, and uh, I remember we were in it, uh, in Vancouver Island touring with the show and she was she was really an extraordinarily unique person and her dress was was extremely unique uh, she was you know striped stockings crazy hair all sorts of different scarves and I remember I spent an afternoon with her walking around uh, you know Vancouver Island uh, and people looking at her and some men kind of saying, oh, wh what the heck is wrong with you? And I sort of, you know, I, I felt sorry for her because she was bold enough to be different and mm -hmm. yet she was taking a lot of abuse. But she was a, a wonderful actress, a wonderful person, and uh, we really got along. 
I'll just ask you to move a bit closer to your microphone so we can hear your dulcet tones. Okay. That's much better. Your, that's, uh, that's dulcet? Your dulcet tones, your acting chops yes. uh, we're going to uh, tap into. What was Jackie in that summer? Oh, gosh. Uh, I remember she was in the Comedy of Errors, which I was in. Uh, it, it was staged, Robin Phillips staged it as a Western. And there was a huge sta uh, covered wagon at center stage. And Jackie was, I forget the part she played, but she just, she just fell into that, that category beautifully as kind of a Mammy Oakum type character. And uh, it was a great production. I was teamed with Bernie Hopkins. And we were the Dromeo, the twins Dromeo. And actually, uh, that's why, that's how Robin hired me because I was living in Toronto looking for work and I was in a little review at the theater in the Dell, which is long gone. And uh, Robin came to see the show and saw me and said, he looks an awful lot like Bernie Hopkins and maybe he'll be good as one of the Dromeos. And I auditioned for him and I, you know, it's like one of those, that was one of the big things that changed the course of my life. You were also in The Tempest? I was in The Tempest. I played Stefano, the drunk, uh, with Barry McGregor as Trinculo, and of course the great William Hutt as Prospero, and Marty Meriden as Miranda. It was a great, great production. And what did you think of my loss of innocence that I described earlier? Did you take part in any of those hijinks? Never. Uh, and that's my story. No, actually, uh, I probably didn't because at that time I was, we were, I was one of the few men that had a family. Uh, everyone else was kind of single and on the run and, and crazy and wild, and I had to go home and, and be with my wife and children. It was kind of a sweet time at Stratford because they hired uh, students to work as, as ushers. And yeah. I think it was, for me, it was a great experience because I fell in love with theater not as a profession but as an appreciative member of of the audience but uh, we were required to sit in the seats or on the steps to monitor the audience mm -hmm. from doing anything crazy or bold i'm not sure what audience members might do they might rush the stage or something but we had to monitor i guess the safety i guess of the patrons so yeah. we had to sit on the steps in the balcony or even in the uh in the orchestra and watching the play and and you're forced to listen to the play over and over again, so it just burns in your memory. Yeah, of course it was a joy for you, wasn't it? Hearing it, was. it over and over. It depends on the show, you know. Um, these were some good shows, uh, comedies, uh, tragedies. I think that was one of the high points of the festival back then. Yeah, it was that was Peter Ustinov uh, around at that time? It was a little after I was there. He played King Lear That's right. a little after, but. Uh, Reports of, of his being at Stratford were were numerous, and they he was such an incredible talent. And I remember somebody told me that uh, he would speak French to the French-speaking people. He he was being measured for his costume by I believe an Italian tailor, and he started speaking Italian to him, German to the chef. I mean, he was an incredible intellect and bon vivant. So I alluded uh, in the opening uh, about a connection to Charles Schultz and Peanuts and, and Charlie Brown. You really have Charlie Brown and Charles Schultz to thank for landing you in Stratford, right? I sure do. Um, gosh, it started in New York. I was uh, living on the Lower East Side 
in a terrible, terrible neighborhood. <laughs> Gunshots in the night were a frequency. And I was selling Christmas cards over the phone. And uh, back then I had a phone service that took my messages. And one lunch at the Christmas card place, I called my service and I said, oh, uh, the Peanuts Company would like you to audition for a role. So I went down to the uh, St. Mark's Place, which is where the original Off-Broadway Charlie Brown was playing. And, and I auditioned with uh, six other guys. I, it was for the general understudy in the Chicago production, which was just opening. They were actually taking the, strat uh, the uh, Toronto cast of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, moving them to Chicago. But the understudy didn't want to go, so they had to hire a new one. So, uh, you know, I auditioned. The guy said, how would you like to go to Chicago? And I said, oh, gosh, yeah, when? He said, tonight. <laughs> so I flew to Chicago. I just, I, you know, I told, I told my landlord to hold my stuff. Uh, God, it was a schmozzle. Uh, got on a plane, flew to Chicago. Um, Marvin Krauss, who was quite a Broadway personality at that time, uh, met me and drove me to the Hotel Sylvia in Chicago, a very kind of down and out, uh, and I was exhausted because I had been up for like 48 hours. And I got to the hotel room and I just kind of collapsed and of course I couldn't fall asleep. So they had a TV there where you could put a quarter in for 15 minutes or half an hour. So I put a quarter in and I was watching The Tonight Show and I was sort of drifting off hoping the TV would shut off and it wouldn't shut off. It went on all night long. I could not turn it off. Got up in the morning, went to the uh, Civic Theater, which is where the show was playing for my first meeting with the cast. And I was in the elevator going up, and this woman walked in in a, in a raccoon coat, hair all akimbo, because it was a very windy corner in Chicago. And she said, God, I hate this country. <laughs> Being an American, I, I thought, well, too bad. You know, I should go home. But that turned out to be my wife. Uh, Kathy Wallace then, who played Lucy, and uh, I was the general understudy, and we soon hit it off, and uh, that was, uh, gosh, a long time ago, 50, over 50 years. And then you ended up taking on the lead role of Charlie Brown in the touring production, right? Yes. It seemed every time I went on with <laughs> as one of the characters as an understudy, there was somebody from the New York office in the audience, and when... Uh, Bob Lydiard, who was playing Charlie Brown in the National Company, decided to step away. They needed a Charlie Brown, and everyone in the office said, well, there's that guy in Chicago. We've seen him do quite a few roles. He's very good. And so they asked me if I'd like to go, and the, uh, they said, we'd like you to join the National Company, and the first stop is Honolulu, Hawaii. And I said, oh, okay, I'll go. And uh, so Kathy and I had to part uh, and it was, it was a sad parting. I never, I never. I remember the first stop before Honolulu was Indianapolis, and I was in my hotel room going, "What have I done?" You know, because I obviously had fallen deeply in love. And uh, but we kept in touch, and uh, eventually Kathy went back to school after the Chicago cl uh, show closed, and we kept communicating. And apparently, she would or. Occasionally, she would fly down to some of the cities that I was appearing in, and we would visit. And, and then, uh, I think it was in Milwaukee, uh, 
I popped the question over the phone, and, uh, you know, she said yes. In your Charlie Brown voice? What's the Charlie Brown voice? Uh, let's see if I can. It's, it's a little, a lot of water under the bridge since I played it, but uh, the opening segment, Lucy said, I wouldn't worry about you, Charlie Brown. After all, psychologists say that a person's personality isn't really established until he's at least five years old. And Charlie Brown says, but I am five. I'm more than five. And Lucy says, oh, well, that's the way it goes. <laughs> now, did you ever play opposite your wife uh, yes. on stage together? Oh, yes, yes. Because after, uh, after the national company closed and Kathy was, and we were married, we were living in Hartford, Connecticut. Where uh, you're from originally. Where I'm from, yeah. yeah. Well, I was, I'm from Plainville, Connecticut, but uh, I got a job on the newspaper in the Hartford Times in Hartford, Connecticut, which is now a defunct newspaper. And Kathy was with me, and we, we lived in this awful apartment, and she was, a <laughs> she was a dental assistant because her father was a dentist and had trained her to be a dental assistant. And it was a summer, and we were on the top floor of this three-story apartment building, and it was hotter than hell. And we used to sit in front of the air conditioner at night and go, how do we get out of here? And so we went to New York, uh, to see some shows, and we ran into the famous Marvin Krauss, who was a producer then. And he said, oh, they're looking for somebody for the bus and truck tour of Charlie Brown. Are you guys interested? We said, yes! And now the, the national company, we flew everywhere. That was the first class. The bus and truck is just what it says. The cast travels in a bus, the scenes travel in a truck. And Gee, I, we toured all over the United States on a, on a bus, and it was... So you saw America. Oh, boy. More than you ever. probably did even before you were an actor. You got to know your own country, Yeah, right? I, I think every state, we, I'm sure we visited every state, um, made most of the major cities. Uh, it, was a, it was an eye-opening experience. Um, gosh, you know, we, we, we played uh, Memphis, Tennessee... We played uh, Houston. We got a tour of the, the NASA Space Center in, in, uh, in Houston, uh, Dallas. And uh, this is an interesting story. My friend, I had a friend in Plainville, Connecticut, who moved to Dallas, and he took us on this tour. And we were driving around, and we came down this highway, and he said, does this place look familiar? And I said, no, nah, not really. And he said, look behind you. And I looked behind me, and there was the Texas Book School Depository where uh, JFK yeah JFK yeah. was shot and that seeing things like that was wow. amazing now uh, in Charlie Brown uh, Lucy has a crush on Schroeder did you find it weird that Lucy and you actually hit it off on stage because Lucy does has no interest in Charlie Brown till the very end she comes at, at you know you're true she she just as a matter of fact, when we got married, when we announced our marriage, Charles Schultz sent us a letter saying, now, Lucy, don't you be too crabby, and Charlie, don't you be too wishy-washy. <laughs> but at the very end of the show, and it brought tears almost universally wherever we played, Charlie Brown is just sitting alone on the stage, and Lucy comes up to him, and he looks like you're going to hit me or what, and she sticks out her hand, and she says, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. And, you know... 
it's a tear, it's it's a wonderful kind of you know conclusion. And a lot of things from uh, Charles Schultz's work, not just in the the musical but in the comic strip, have stuck in society. That phrase, "You're a good man, Charlie Brown," has yeah. stuck. Things like "good grief." Yeah, I can't remember what else. Happiness is a warm puppy. That's right. Yeah, uh, Charles. I met Charles Schultz. Uh, we were in Los Angeles, and I was in a bookstore, and. Uh, going, you know, looking for plays and books and stuff. And I turned around, and there's, you know, down at the end of the aisle was Charlie, was Charles Schultz. And this is how insecure I was as an actor. I said, should I go over and introduce myself? Or should I, what if he doesn't think I'm the right Charlie Brown and he calls the office and I got fired? (laughs) (laughs) So I swallowed my pride and I went over and said, Mr. Schultz, I'm, you know, Richard Whalen, I... And playing Charlie Brown in the in the road company of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. He I tell you, he couldn't have been nicer. He was actually with Bill Melendez, who was, I believe, the director of all the cartoon, you know, the, the animated. And unfortunately, we were all packed and ready to go back ready to go back to Las Vegas where our show was playing. And he invited me out to the studio to to watch them. They were filming a, a new episode. And I, I just kicked myself that I couldn't do it, but wow. I said, I'm sorry, but, you know, um, I'm off to uh, Las Vegas, but I'd love to. Um, and Peanuts, like Charles Schultz, uh, he toyed with different spirituality and philosophy. He was a Christian yes. uh, earlier on, and then he became a humanist, more accepting it. He used uh, Peanuts to provide some insight and lessons into how we should be as as people, I think. Yes, he had a wonderful outlook on life. Um, he started out, you know those matchbook covers, and it's a draw me and win an art scholarship? Well, he worked for that company in Minneapolis, and then he started drawing cartoons, which uh, I, I think uh, the original title of the cartoon was Little Folks, and very, very dissimilar to what we know now as Charlie Brown. But in this office where he was working in the artist school, all of his friends, one of them being a guy named Charlie Brown, a woman named Frida, uh, several other names, you know, and we met them all. Uh, when we were playing Minneapolis, they, they all took us out to dinner and it was, it was wonderful, but they were all based on actual real people and I got to know Charlie the original Charlie Brown quite well and he was Charlie Brown you know he was uh, he told me <laughs> about this time he was visiting Charles Schultz in, in Los Angeles and he was staying at this really cheap hotel and he didn't want Charles Schultz to know he was staying at this cheap so he was being driven home by Charles Schultz and he said oh you could just drop me off at the corner and he got out of the car and was going to walk to his cheap hotel. And he leaned down to say goodbye to Charles Schultz, and he hit his head on the rearview mirror. <laughs> and it, you know, it was just a, a typical Charlie Brown thing. I mean, he was. Well, the work of Charles Schultz is timeless. We still watch the uh, it's a Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, absolutely. And it just seems to have that uh, piece of nostalgia that we're all longing for these days. Yeah, yeah, and the wisdom of his, of his script, of his stories, which the, the show You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, is based mostly on his earlier, earlier and the philosophy of uh, one of my favorite, we call them blackouts, but Patty, who was kind of this very, she's concerned with her looks, and she's, you know, always tying her jump rope around her neck, and, 
And Linus, who's a bit of a philosopher, is standing there saying, you know, Patty, life is so strange. And he goes on and on. And, you know, we're just one, one small dot in this universe. And what do, we, what do we know about? And I can't remember the exact line, but he goes on and on on this philosophical engine. What do you think, Patty? And she says, we had spaghetti at our house three times last week, <laughs> which is that beautiful kind of, if you talk to some people and they just don't get what you're saying. You're listening to The Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. Check out our website, thestratfordslice.com, and be sure to subscribe. And now, back to the show. I did a documentary a number of years ago, 20 years ago, I guess, on um, the Canadian war hero, Billy Bishop. Mm -hmm. And when we were making that, I was making it with my friend Diana Bishop, who is Billy Bishop's granddaughter. And many people were saying, oh, uh, well, um, when Snoopy uh, is fighting the Red Baron, uh, could it be Billy Bishop? <laughs> but because uh, the Red Baron uh, was representing Baron von Richthofen. Yes. Um, who uh, nobody's sure for uh, Billy Bishop had many uh, sorties and he might have come into contact, but I believe it was the Canadian fighter pilot Arthur Brown who was credited for shooting uh, down uh, the Red Baron yeah. and he it affected him all of his life. Uh, it was a negative thing for him. He, he killed sure. another man and sure. he killed the German hero. But what do you think about that? That kind of stands out with what Charles Schultz did. Uh, Snoopy versus the Red Baron uh, yeah. is, is a common thing that keeps coming back. Yeah, um, he used the he used the the cartoon to kind of comment on the morality of life. Um, I read somewhere that he, he had been kind of criticized for not having uh, a black character, a young black boy character. And he kind of bristled at that suggestion because, you know, this is my cartoon strip and I'll do what I want with it. But eventually he did uh, introduce a, a black young character to the script. And I think, you know, he, he didn't want to be forced. He didn't want to be a token character. But then he saw the the wisdom of inclusion, and he you know he, he he decided to include a black character. So then you came back uh, to Toronto, and you were t telling the story earlier about uh, being in uh, production at theater in the Dell at yes. Robin Phillips. What was that production, and how did that all lead you on a path to Stratford? Well, uh, the theater in the Dell was a little cabaret near the University Hospital. And it was a wonderful little, and there was a show in New York called What's a Nice Country Like You Doing in a State Like This, which was during the Nixon era, which was, it was a big kind of uh, critique of American politics, and it was very successful, and they decided to open a Toronto production, and I auditioned, and I got the part, and so did Andrea Martin, and so did Martin Short, and Claude Tessier, and uh, several other people. And uh, it was blackouts. It was uh, very, very funny stuff. Uh, slightly controversial, but, you know, I th it ran uh, close to a year, maybe a year and a half. Uh, but as I say, when Robin Phillips came, he was doing this countrywide tour. Talent search. Yeah. And he came to, I mean, he went everywhere to see all yeah. sorts of people. And he came to Theater in the Dell, saw the show, and as I say, he was doing Comedy of Errors, and Bernie Hopkins was going to be one of the... And I looked a bit like Bernie. I was short and a, a bit stocky. And so he asked me to come and audition. And 
This was in the era of Godspell and Hairspray, so people were pushing boundaries uh, yep. at uh, cabarets and things like that. Very much so. And uh, we had a great, uh, a great cast. Well, I mean, my gosh, Andrea Martin and Martin Short, myself. Trudy Desmond was also in it, a wonderful jazz singer. And Claude Tessier, who very sadly passed away from AIDS not too long after I knew him. He was in a production of uh, Chorus Line in Los Angeles. And, and he, I believe that's when he got sick and he passed away out there. Uh, but it was extremely popular. Uh, yeah. People seem, even though it was, a, it was an American show, I think the Canadians identified with that kind of Nixonian political, you know, which ended badly for Nixon, of course, uh, duplicity and dishonesty, and they, they made that show run, uh, you know. It was around the Watergate era, or prior to that, I guess. Yes. Yeah. So four seasons, you did four seasons on stage at Stratford, is that right? Yes. Yeah. And why did you decide that? Uh, I lost my nerve. Um, happens, you know, you're young and fearless and you, you go on stage and you don't really think about what horrible things could happen. And suddenly <laughs> those horrible things, you know, like forgetting lines and missing cues and, you know, uh, it wore on me and uh, I just, I didn't enjoy performing anymore. Stage fright. Stage fright, right. yeah, absolutely. I would have huge panic attacks before going on stage. Uh, same thing happened, I mean, I'm not equating myself with Richard Manette, but the same thing happened with Richard Manette. The same thing happened with Laurence Olivier. Couldn't perform because of that absolute terror of going on stage, because it is frightening. Well, I know a lot of actors who have to psych themselves up and go before they go on stage and exercise to block everything else out so they yeah. can focus. Yeah. And I know other actors who wake up in the middle of the night thinking they've missed their cue. So what is the intensity of going on stage that people in the audience really don't understand that an actor must um, prepare to prevent that from happening? I think it's the ultimate vulnerability of being out there on your own with nothing but the lines in your head and you know the, the moves that you must do. And as I say, when you're young, you're young and brave but when you get old, you get older, you get kind of, uh, gee, do I really remember what I'm supposed to say? I remember there's a wonderful act, was a wonderful actor with the festival uh, back in the day, Don Lewis, uh, who's a good friend of mine. His stage name was Lewis Gordon. And I mean, he played the biggest roles. He, he understudied King Lear. He, he played, you know, he was in the festival for years. And I remember one time, just before the curtain went up, he was running around, he had a big part, I forget what the play was, but he was running around saying, what's my first line? What's my first line? You know, it's like that, it's almost a subconscious, you're trying to work against yourself, but uh, Judy Dench, I read somewhere, also has terrible stage fright, but she somehow used it. Um, but she said, she confessed that when she goes to the first rehearsal, her purse and coat, she will put in a chair by the door in case she has to run out, you know, in case she has a terrible panic attack and has to run out, she can grab her purse and coat on the way out. So those who do it well, what do you think their key to success is on stage? Or does everybody have a very different approach depending on their own personality? I think it's confidence. I think the people who, you know, 
um, I know that, that, that Maggie Smith and Brian Bedford, whom I, I've worked with, uh, got a little, Brian not so much, but Maggie would, would get very, very nervous, but she used it, she used that energy to spike her performance. Um, I remember once I was standing in the wings watching her and she went up, which means she forgot her lines, and so she started making up stuff, but in iambic pentameter, which only Maggie Smith could do. And she came off stage, like, and she was like, you know, and she looked at me and she said, what the hell did I say out there? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it didn't, I mean, it didn't prevent her from going out again and doing the same thing. So you opted to stay in Stratford, and you mentioned earlier you were working for a newspaper in, in Hartford. So what did you end up uh, um, pursuing after leaving the, the company? Well, I was, I was ill-equipped to do a lot, most things, except I was a writer, and I had worked for newspapers. So I went to the local newspaper, the Beacon Herald, and they had a part-time position, uh, the Rotary Hockey Games, on the weekend had to be reported on. So I would uh, come in Sunday night and sit down at the computer and write. Typewriter. Uh, it wouldn't have been computers back then, would it? Yes, I think we very, very, you know, I really forget it might have been typewriters. Yes, I think it was typewriters. Because I worked there as okay. a summer student in 1980 or 81, yeah. the year, whatever year Terry Fox came through Stratford. Yeah. I yeah. forget what year that was. Uh, yeah. But... Uh, you were there, and I think you, when you were there, we were all on typewriters. I think they were electric typewriters. Yes. IBM Selectric, that's now right. that I remember. That's yeah. right. And you were the wire editor at the time. Yeah, well, before that, I was the rotary cocky reporter. And then uh, somebody, one of the sports guys left, and they asked me if I'd like to be a sports writer. And I'm a sports fan, but I'm certainly not a sports authority, but I needed a job. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll be the sports writer. And then um, I was a sports writer for a couple of years. And then Jack Ross, who was the wire editor, retired. And they said, would you like to be the wire editor? And I said, in many respects, John Weichel, who was the managing editor then, at saved my bacon because I could have very easily, you know, gone on the bread line because there wasn't a lot I could do, uh, you know, because I'd been an actor since I was like 18 years old. So they saved my life. One act wonder. A one, a one act, one, po one, one pony. One, one trick pony. That's one what I was trying pony. to say. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. What I remember about the Beacon Herald, I mean, it was a great place for me because I ultimately became a, a journalist and writer myself. But what re I remember about that time is that every single person smoked in the newsroom. Yes. And you'd walk into the newsroom in a cloud of smoke. And I can't remember who it was, but Al Zabis, I think, uh, who was a reporter at the yeah. time. And we used to bring in um, scrapers, uh, like he'd put on drywall. Yeah. And once or twice a month, you would scrape the yellow film off oh the, the windows, and it coated the typewriters. Yeah, and, uh, that's right. That's right. I remember, uh, you know, occasionally, the one of the reporters would would have like a big, huge ashtray of yeah. butts and ash, and he would wrap it up in a piece of paper and throw it in the trash. I mean. Yeah, everyone smoked. But I didn't get the bug. I, uh, everybody in journalism at that that time was 
hard drinking and hard smoking. In fact, when I went to Ryerson jur- Journalism School, I won't mention the professor's name, but he was a hard-bitten uh, journalist from the Toronto Star who taught part-time at Ryerson. And he would conduct his first class at the Imperial Public Library, <laughs> which was the pub uh, down the road. So us newbies, you know, 19 or 20-year-old first-year journalism students would be uh, introduced to journalism over some drinks uh, yeah. with the professor. It's a long, a long heritage of, of drinking and smoking. And I, like, you know Jimmy Breslin, the, the famous New York Post or the New York Daily News writer, he was wonderful and novelist. Uh, he was just the typical hard-bitten, you know. I remember uh, when he went to cover the Kennedy assassination, he interviewed the man who dug the grave. And wow. he had that kind of, you know, offbeat. But this is a story about him. Um, I was on a children's theater tour for about three months and I came back to the city, and, and you know, on the road for three months, I wore a dirty pair of jeans, a, a shirt, a, a lumber jacket. I, was, I looked a mess. But the bus dropped me off at the middle of Times Square, and I looked around, and I needed, I needed a, a meal uh, and a drink. So there was, uh, I believe the name of the, the, cl- the restaurant was Dinty Moore's. They were famous. They put their Dinty Moore's stew in cans and sold it. But I went into Dinty Moore's. The minute I walked in, I said, this place is classy. I shouldn't be here. But I sat at the bar, and the bartender you know, said, what do you want? And I, I, I think I ordered a beer. And he said, okay, but I'll give you the beer. But after, you're going to have to leave because you don't have the right... Uh, and the guy down at the end of the bar said, hey, he's a working man. He's wearing working man clothes. You let him have whatever he wants, and I'll pay for it. And it was Jimmy Breslin. Wow. You know, and it was like <laughs> I could have gone over and kissed him, but, you know, he, was, he made me feel so welcome and, you know, yeah, I'm a working man, by God. That reminds me of a story uh, uh, about William Shatner. I worked with William Shatner on a number of films, and we were in New York um, on the July 4th holiday weekend. Uh, I can't remember what year, but a long time ago. It was like 104 degrees. And uh, we were um, doing a film called uh, The Captains, which you can see a poster up on our, our wall. And you see Bill sitting in a box. And I'll tell you the story about Bill in a box, because he was going to be interviewing Kate Mulgrew, who played... Um, Captain Janeway on another iteration of, uh, of Star Trek. And uh, he was telling us this story about uh, he started off at Stratford and went to New York and got his big break on, on Broadway. He was a struggling uh, actor. And when he was in uh, a Broadway show, he was going to, I guess, the famous restaurant Sardi's, right? It's a steakhouse. Mm-hmm. And um, he encountered a man, homeless man, sitting in a box outside of <laughs> Sardi's. And he felt sorry for the guy, and uh, he said what the homeless man said, you know, can you get me something uh, when you go into the restaurant? And uh, Bill said, what would you like? He said, I'd like a steak. And so Bill uh, went in and bought the man a steak, and he came out, and he said, oh, I wanted medium rare. (laughs) So Bill was remembering this story. So he was wearing this three-piece suit in 104 degrees, temperatures and he said 
I'm going to be that homeless guy, and uh, I'm going to sit in the box and jump out and surprise Kate Mulgrew. <laughs> and uh, Kate Mulgrew didn't know this was being set up because we filmed yeah. it spontaneously. But the biggest challenge of that was it was July 4th holiday weekend. Everything was closed, and we had to send our production assistant around Manhattan looking for a box that might have held a stove or a yeah, refrigerator. Right. Big enough for wooden and, uh, Yeah, and so that's... Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that, I remember that story. Uh, there's this well. old story about this this street person is begging for uh, for money, and uh, he the very well dressed man passes by, and the guy says, uh, "Sir, could you help me uh, have a little change?" And he said, "I'm sorry," he said, uh, "Business is way down, and I, I just can't afford it." And the man, the homeless man, looked at him and said, "So you're having a bad year, and I should suffer." <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Getting back to the Beacon Herald uh, for a moment, we should remind everybody that that was probably one of the great newspapers, independent newspapers in Canada at the time. Absolutely. Up there with the Kingston Whig Standard and uh, a number of other papers. Who, Owen Sound, I believe. Yeah, uh, papers that were staunchly independent, family-run newspapers. Yeah. And I think actually Kingston Whig Standard was the second last because the family sold out there, and the Beacon Herald was probably the last uh, family-owned newspaper in yes, Ontario. They was. held out. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's funny, because I, I, I turned to playwriting after uh, leaving the stage, and I wrote a play once called Kindred Spirits, which dealt with the death of the local newspaper, because um, that was an important reflection of the community, because... I remember I interviewed a woman, um, Marion Duke, who was the p editor of the Listowel Banner, and she was retiring. And she was bemoaning the same fate of the local newspaper, she said, because, you know, the eyes of the community used to be these, these local farm women who had, an, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. They had their eye on the community, and they would report the intricacies of what was happening in the community. But she said that ended when all the women went to work, uh, you know, for a job. And there's a, there's a, all over North America, probably all over the world, there's the death of the local newspaper, the local voice, the independent voice, uh, which is really a sad commentary about, you know, uh, journalism. And they've all become sort of Mac paper with puzzles and contests and, yeah, but you know, digging deep into the community uh, or reflecting the troubles of the community, that just doesn't happen anymore in, in, in papers. And we're turning our attention to social media. We're not getting, uh, getting the truth, yeah. you know, witness what's going yes, on. Yes, and with social world. media, yeah. Yeah. there's absolutely no confirming if the voice is, is accurate or not. Yeah. Whereas newspapers, you trusted a newspaper, you know. You, somebody, uh, this is an old story of the Beacon Herald when they, landed on the moon somebody wrote the beacon and said you know i thought all of this was staged i didn't believe that it would land it on the moon until i read it in the beacon and then i believed it wow. and that kind of readership you know devotion is kind of missing today and you and i have talked a lot uh about your perspective on the country of your birth because there's been a lot of tumult in the United States over the last 
eight to 10 years. Uh, what do you see happening there? I've, I've just finished reading a book by the journalist Timothy Snyder called On Tyranny, and his argument is that if we're not careful, um, we're slipping into a tyrannical age where authoritarianism, uh, if it already hasn't taken hold, uh, will take hold and will be duped into following you know, the next irrational uh, leader who wants to take us down a certain direction. What do you see happening in your, are we in danger of living next to an authoritarian regime? Not so much an authoritarian regime as a regime that is dictated by uh, misinformation and, um, you know, I don't want to get too political here, but the Republican Party in America has given up truth as a, as a weapon. And there was a woman this morning on television. Uh, she was a senator, a state senator from Michigan, and one of her opponents accused her of being pro-pedophilia, trying to sexualize kindergarten students. And this was just a total, total make, she made it up. And this woman who was accused addressed the Senate the next day, and it was a wonderful speech. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. But she said, I am a mother, I am a citizen, I am a straight woman with children, and you know all of these other things are lies, but it's time we start, we stop marginalizing people who are different and the Republican Party seems to seems to be doing that. And I, I just I don't understand, you know, everyone's predicting the 20, 2022 mid-elections, the Republicans are going to take uh, charge of the Senate and the House of Representatives, and they very well might, but uh, I'm afraid if that happens, we're one step closer to, uh, you know, unfortunate circumstances. But America was established on conflict, and it has always had this two-sided coin, I suppose. Do you think conflict is a natural part of the American psyche? Uh, you're right in that it was, it was founded on conflict and different voices, but they were all truthful voices in a, in a way. What you have now is your truthful voice on one side and a whack-a-mole philosophy of how do, we, how do we stay in power on the other. For instance, the recent uh, confirmation hearings of the first black woman to be on the Supreme Court. I mean, she is the most qualified person you could imagine. And yet, the Republican Party and the Republican people on the, on the, on the uh, justice, you know, who were in charge of giving her the, the okay, brought up ridiculous accusations against her. And it was really embarrassing. I was embarrassed when I when I watched that. Uh, they have to, they've made up this total false premise that that I mean, QAnon. Uh, you know, Democrats eat babies, and that's not you know. And people are believing this. So I fear that what people now believe, uh, th there's such a low uh, you know uh, such a low threshold about what people will believe. Yeah, yeah. Those Democrats, they're eating babies right now, <laughs> you know. It'd be amazing how many yeah. people, real, you know, uh, you know, follow that. We'll will accept that as the truth. It's scary. It really is scary. Well, maybe things like I'll have you sit a bit closer because your your dulcet tones are are vanishing into our vast studio complex tone. here. Hey, we're in the uh, our our beautiful downtown Stratford headquarters of Ballinrent Entertainment, where we're doing this yes. coffee table podcast. I love what you've done with the place. 
we can't, uh, if you're listening, you can't see, but we've got uh, posters of our various films and a few uh, things looted around. In fact, speaking of that newspaper thing, I have the desk from the Milverton, what was the newspaper name again? Milverton? The Milverton... Banner? Oh, no, the Lissowell Banner. Lissowell Banner, yeah. Yeah. I have the desk, uh, newspaper editor's desk, as my desk. It's like this football size. From field. the Listwell Banner? Yeah, from one of the newspapers up there. It's Perth County editor's wow. desk. Uh, it's got uh, a leather top, and it's just it's yeah. wonderful. Well, if it was, it's Marion Duke's desk. It's it's uh, it's museum worthy because she was uh, she was a stalwart uh, performer in the in the local news. As a matter of fact, she had a CBC program that talked of uh, of different happenings in rural Ontario. And uh, she was a wonderful, wonderful woman. And, uh, you know, her, I, I'm not, she moved up north to a log cabin with no phone or no internet. She just wanted to be alone, you know. But a great, a great uh, newswoman, and I wish there were more of them. So this show is called The Stratford Slice. What do you think the slice of Stratford is for you that you'd like to share? Where, where is our, our community going, and how would you describe it? Well, I've lived in many, many cities. I've lived in, in a small town in Connecticut. I've lived in uh, New York City for quite a few years. I've lived in Chicago. I've visited many, many big cities around the world. And when we came to Stratford, my father used to come up. Uh, my father was a finance, he worked in, in business, and he actually he was uh, on Wall Street in 1929 when the, when, the, uh, when the stock market crashed. And he took me down to New York once and down to Wall Street, and he pointed to a place on the sidewalk, and he said, I saw a guy jump out of a building and land here when I was, you know, working in a... Anyway, he would come to Stratford and, and sit in our backyard and say, this reminds me of America in the 1930s. And I understood what he said, and I don't mean it in a backward sense, but there's something there's something about Stratford that, you know, it's it's a, an innocence, uh, a, a place where, a uh, great place to raise kids, which is why we stayed, and yet it has that effect of, you know, it had the festival, so it has that cross section of, of, of incredibly sophisticated culture restaurants, uh, you know, authors live here. The library is such a great library. To, uh, it's, it's kind of a cross-section of both the rural and the urban. And that's, you know. But it always hasn't been this way. I knew that when I was growing up here, I couldn't wait to get out and, and leave. And uh, there wasn't much for young people to do when I was uh, growing up. But uh, And I never thought I'd move back, but here I am many years uh, later, and you and I have bounced back and forth over the, since 1976 we, we first met, and we keep encountering each other over the years, and it's, it seems like it's, uh, we can't escape each other. I know, and I, I wish I could find a way, but uh, <laughs> I think it stems from all those funny cigarettes you were smoking outside the stage door when I would uh, pass you in the... <laughs> I never inhaled. <laughs> okay, Bill. I've got some business to get out of the way because uh, this podcast wouldn't happen without uh, the support of, of many people. So I've got a, a few, as they say in radio, some liner notes to, to thank. So Stratford Slice is presented with the support of Dancing Waters Boutique, featuring art, decor, and treasures from Asia. 
Put I plan to I plan to go there and buy my wife a birthday present. By lovely. The way. Uh, put Dancing Waters on your shopping list the next time you're in Stratford, and buy StageView.ca, Canada's digital concert hall, coming soon to a streaming platform near you. Stratford Slice is, of course, produced here in the Stratford studios of Ballinrat Entertainment. Uh, we've been illuminating extraordinary stories for more than 25 years. You can visit us at ballinrand.com or follow us on social media at Ballinrand Entertainment. And if you want to check out more about our podcast, you can visit the Stratford Slice podcast website at thestratfordslice.ca. Rick, it's been a pleasure having this coffee chat uh, with you and... Uh, Wish you all the best, and, and thanks for being my guest. Well, thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed uh, talking about life in the past. It's funny, as I was passing the Avon Theatre on my way down here, there were plaques of very famous actors that had appeared there, and most of them are gone, sadly, but uh, also, sadly, most of them I worked with. <laughs> so it was a, a little... A little nostalgia for me. Well, let's end on a, on, a, on a funny note. Is it Avon or Avon? I don't know. You know, there's an Avon, Connecticut, where I once lived when I was a little boy. But I think Avon is here, is the Avon in Stratford. But in the UK, it's Stratford-upon-Avon. Is it? I believe so. Well, I'll be damned. And whenever I hear the Avon, I always think of the Avon lady, ding dong, at your <laughs> at your door. So I, I I go with Avon, but a lot of people uh, Avon is, it, is is kind of well, welcome to Avon. But Avon is a classier Avon. It's like is it tomato or tomato, potato or potato? Craig, let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. You've been listening to the Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. For more episodes, check out our website, thestratfordslice.com, and be sure to subscribe. The Stratford Slice is produced by Ballinran Entertainment, Southwestern Ontario's number one digital media studio. If you have a great story to tell and want to be on the podcast, please reach out to us through our website, thestratfordslice.com.